The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Linda House, president of the Cancer Support Community, sitting in this week for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo. The wellness community and Gilda's clubs have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 120 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. I believe, as does everyone at the Cancer Support Community, that it is critically important for all patients to raise their voices in order to ensure that the care and the treatments they receive address their individual values, preferences, and priority, and to ensure that there is transparency and honesty in the options that are being presented to them, whether it's diagnostic or treatment, and also to ensure that they are respected, heard, and viewed first as human beings and not as their diseases. And today, we are fortunate to speak with two really incredible women who have done just that and who are not only raising their voices on behalf of themselves and advocating for themselves, but really inspiring all of us to raise our voices as well. So with us on the show today are veteran broadcaster and celebrity Joan London and Amy Berman, who is a senior program officer at the John A. Hartford Foundation. We're going to start our conversation today with Joan London, and we will be joined shortly by Amy Joan London is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, motivational speaker, and successful entrepreneur. As host of Good Morning America for nearly two decades, Joan brought insight to millions of Americans each day and kept them up to date on how to care for their homes, their families, and themselves. As a working mother of seven and having been the caregiver to her elderly mother, Joan truly understands the stresses women face today and every day. With her interest in family health and wellness, Joan has continued to be a reassuring and informative presence in American homes for more than 30 years. In 2014, Joan was diagnosed with stage 2 triple negative breast cancer. As a part of her treatment, she had 16 rounds of chemotherapy, 6 weeks of radiation therapy, a lumpectomy, and 2 blood transfusions. I'm happy to add that today, Joan is cancer-free and not as busy as she ever was, but probably busier, I'm guessing, than she ever was. (laughs) Joan is also the author of a a recently released memoir entitled, Had I Known. So, Joan, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. So, let's take our listeners back to to the day that you returned to the set of Good Morning America to announce your cancer diagnosis. What was going through your mind as you sat across from Robin Roberts, who also has a well-known cancer story, two of them, unfortunately, um, with millions of viewers watching? Take us back to that point in time. Well, having Robin across from me probably made me the most comfortable, but I think as anybody knows that's gone through this journey, it's hard to even pick up the phone and tell a friend it's hard to get those words out of your mouth, I have cancer. And I was really, you know, I, I will admittedly say that in the very, very beginning, I was trying to figure out, okay, so if I put a baseball hat on and sunglasses, could I get in and out of cancer treatment centers and not tell anyone? Then I thought, first of all, that's ridiculous. It'll never work. And then the story will come out, oh, John Lennon's dying, and you don't want that kind of a headline, so get in front of this one, get out there, 
and go public with it. And I picked up the phone and called Robin, and she said, you know what? When you walk off the set, 2,000 pounds is going to be lifted from your shoulders. And I said, well, after being diagnosed, and I was so shocked because I didn't think I'd ever be the one that would get breast cancer because it's one in eight, and I didn't have it in my family, so I wouldn't be one of those one in eight. And, you know, only after I got breast cancer, I mean, had I known (laughs) that only one uh, that only less than 10% of women diagnosed with breast cancer actually ever had a family history, maybe I would have thought a little differently, been a little more vigilant, maybe even made some different decisions along the way. But truly, about five days after I was diagnosed, I was going to sleep, or try and go to sleep, and thinking, wait a minute, your dad was a cancer surgeon. You know, taken before the end of his time, he was... He spoke all over the country for the American Cancer Society. He was coming back from speaking at a cancer convention in, in our plane because he was also an avid private pilot. And he mm-hmm. crashed. And as odd as life may seem, you just got handed an opportunity to carry on his legacy. And it would be so uncharacteristic of Joan London not to go out and be honest and be open and share this chapter. I've shared every other chapter of my life but to share a chapter where you would actually have the potential for helping others. So, you know, I'd gone through that whole thought process as I sat down that morning, but I'm not going to tell you that I wasn't maybe more nervous than any other time I've ever been in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. Well, and you certainly chose to really advance the idea of speaking and, and representing that legacy when you, in a very public way, did the cover of People magazine. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was so, my first 12 weeks, my first 12 weeks of chemo, and I, I wasn't feeling my best at the time, and <clears throat> People magazine had been speaking to me for a few months about doing it, and I kept going back and forth, you know, it'd be good to be a voice for so many women, you'll raise the level of conversation in America, then I thought, oh, no, 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 my kids, friends will see it, will they get teased, how will my husband feel about the fact that everyone's going to see me bald, Um, and then the moment came, and, you know, I put it up for a vote with my younger kids, I have twins who are 12 and twins who are 10, and I put it up for a vote, and, you know, my son, Max, he raised his hand the second I got the question out, should I do this, and he said, you should totally do it, Mom. Dad already talked to us about this. If we say yes, that's the hero vote. You need to do this because you can help other, other women uh, all across the country. And so the next morning, I still, I, I don't know if when that door opened and that photographer walked in, I don't know if I was 100% decided. But then, you know, we, like if you've seen the book, Had I Known, the front cover is with a wig. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pretty good one, though. Everybody, I it really looked a lot like my real hair. And then the back cover is without the wig. And the pictures were taken, you know, five minutes apart. Uh, but it took, a, it took a lot of courage to take that wig off. You know, you, you, at the last minute you thought, you still have a chance to back out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you truly inspired a lot, of, a lot of women who are both going through cancer treatment, who may have other, you know, thoughts about body image and, and, and hair loss. And so, you know, on behalf of them, thank you for doing that. You certainly were an inspiration. And that was a beautiful photo of you, is a beautiful photo of uh, you. Well, thank God for an oval head. And who would ever know you had an oval head until you shaved it off? Um, <laughs> and I did shave it off. That was at a suggestion of Robin Roberts. She said, Joni, don't let it just start falling out. It's really depressing. Just go somewhere and do it yourself. So I walked into a salon I never really had gone into um, and asked for someone to shave my head. And thank God this lovely guy, Juan, he's tall, and he walked forward and he said, come on, follow me. And he took me in the back of the shop into a little area where we couldn't be seen and, and sat me down and put, that, put a little you know, robe around me and then took that buzzer like, women never hear that sound. Men are used to it. But, boy, they put that buzzer at the back of your head, right by your ear, and it's the scariest thing, and just buzzed it all off. But at least I was doing it, not the cancer. And I think that was kind of an empowering 
moment. Well, and, and, and part of the, the, the conversation of this exact show is how do you take control of your own destiny around cancer? Because you, you really do feel like, I mean, a lot of us, I think most of us feel like we're, you know, somewhat in control of our lives. Some of us all, at times, all feel like it's out of control. But in general, like, we feel like we're calling the shots and in control of our life. And the second you hear those words, you have cancer, wow, I mean, you're just shot into this whole new world with all this verbiage you've never heard before because I hadn't really gone through it with a girlfriend or a relative or anyone. So I had never heard, you know, triple negative. When I was told I had triple negative, I thought, oh, that sounds good. At least I'm negative to three things. Uh I didn't realize that, you know, it meant that I had this rare little subset that that had no targeted therapy. Um, and you just have to learn so much. I highly recommend that if you ever get this diagnosis that you take a relative or a friend with you with a notepad. They can be your ears and write down everything. And I did that. I, and my daughters, my grown daughters, went to everything with me and my husband. And they wrote it all down. And then I started transferring. And I opened up a new blank Word document on my computer and I put at the top, I will survive. And I think that's one of the most important things. Start with that assumption. I will survive. And I, at first, I just put in all the notes from all the doctors so I'd remember what everybody was saying. And after a while, you start pouring your questions and your frustrations and your concerns and your hopes and your fears out onto the page. Um, and then, quite honestly... I think when anyone contemplates the possibility of death, you kind of look back at your life. Mm -hmm. So Had I Known really kind of became a bit of an autobiography. But it's because that's what I experienced when I went through my my treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and stay on that theme for just a second, Joan, because I know since you've gone through your treatment and now you see things in a, in a very different way because you're informed in a way that you weren't uh, before. Yeah. You've done a lot to really help bring others into that age of enlightenment so that when they're just beginning their journey you and you've done you've you've just done that you know in this conversation so how how have you taken what you've learned and turned that into helping to empower others to become educated advocates on their behalf well i think that's my purpose on this earth is to mm-hmm. educate and empower um, <clears throat> they say there are two great days in your life the day you're born and the day you find out why and i certainly think i have learned the why mm-hmm. of my mm-hmm. life. Um, and so I just look for ways to facilitate that, you know, and I started Alive with Joan, an internet TV channel dedicated to breast cancer. Um, and it, I knew that that was a way that people could go online wherever they were, on their phone, on their laptop, on their computer, and just go to Alive with Joan when they wanted to. Um, whether it was women trying to learn more so that they could prevent possibility of having breast cancer, whether it was someone just getting diagnosed, whether it was someone trying to find out, you know, try to get information to help them figure out which treatment to take, because that's one of the things that is kind of confounding, is you can go for two or three different opinions, and you actually get two or three different opinions, and then you have to decide, and you're not the medical professional. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a scary path because of that. And then, you know, for also the three million or so women out there that are living, having survived breast cancer, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about all of this is that unlike back in the 60s when my dad was treating cancer patients, we live in a world today where there are so many incredible treatments and more being discovered literally every day um, that if you do get a diagnosis, if, you're, if you catch it in the early stages, you have better than a 90% chance of surviving it and living on the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So everybody has to remember that so that they don't totally panic. They should also remember that I think, I don't know, 80, 85% of the time that you find a lump, it's not necessarily cancer. You don't have to freak out. But the one thing we do know, if you catch it early, you'll probably survive it. So I think it's really important, and I think it's, in, it's confusing for women in, 
with all of the recent, you know, um, reports coming out of American Cancer Society, don't start your mammogram until 45, don't start it at 40, and don't do diagnostic breast exams. I mean, I think it's left women kind of scratching their heads. So I'm going to be here and, and I'm going to tell you what I think. Every woman should do their self-breast exams. And just know you can't tell from the outside whether you have dense breast tissue. That's only discovered in a mammogram. But you can know your normal. And if you know your normal and you, you know, you, every month you do your self-breast exams. And, I'll, and I need to be honest because if I'm not honest, I'm not going to help women. I mm-hmm. did not do my self-breast exams. Mm-hmm. because I didn't think I'd ever get it because I didn't have it in my family. So I'm here to tell you I lived under a huge myth, so don't live under that myth. Don't think you're exempt no matter what your circumstances. You know, you could be, I got a, I got a cancer that usually young African-American women get. You know, I'm 60-something and white. I mean, I'm, I'm an outlier, but I still got it. So none of us are exempt. You need to know you're normal, and if anything doesn't seem right around your breast or up under your arm, you go in and have it checked out. Great advice. Great advice. Joan, I know that we are bumping up against our time with you and we have to, to, to move to a commercial break, but just I, I want to squeeze in one question and then I want, I want you to tell our yes. listeners how they can best reach you or learn more about, about your thoughts around this. You know, you have a huge fan base. You've had a huge fan base for years, both in your pre-cancer and certainly in your post-cancer life. How has your diagnosis and your communication with your audience on this particular issue, how has that changed your relationship with those who adore you? Completely, because we didn't have Facebook when I was, we didn't have social internet (laughs) when I was on GMA in 1997. And oddly, by going public, I have reconnected with, well, according to my Facebook page, millions um, anybody can, I, I invite people to come on Facebook and find me, come on Twitter, I'm at Joan London, um, come to my website, joanlondon.com, I think you'll learn a tremendous amount about health and wellness in general and caregiving um, and boomers, and then also you can go to Alive with Joan, and you can obviously get to that through my joanlondon.com website. If you have questions, ask them, because that's how I run the, both the website and the alive, dot, alive with Joan. I see your questions. I go to the experts. I find the answers for you. That's great. Thank you so much for doing that. We have got to take a quick commercial break, Joan. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, and thank you for all that you're doing for the, the tens of thousands of, of not only women facing breast cancer, but other people who are facing cancer in, in general. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't thank you for all that you're doing on behalf of the cancer support community and our breakaway from cancer partners. It's truly an honor to, to work with you. Thank you for being here. All righty. Thank you so much. It was my honor. Oh, thank you. And this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back after the break with Amy Berman. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Amgen Oncology and Lilly Oncology. I am Linda House sitting in this week for your host, Kim Tebaldo, and we are so happy this segment to be joined by Amy Berman. Amy is a senior program officer at the Hartford Foundation where she heads the Integrating and Improving Services Program, focusing on developing innovative, cost-effective models of care for older adults. The mission of the Hartford Foundation is to improve the health of older Americans. She also directs a number of collaborations within the the United States Administration on Aging, AARP, that addresses the needs of families and caregivers. Prior to joining Hartford, Ms. Berman served as Nursing Education Initiatives Director at the Hartford Institute for Geriatric Nursing at New York University's College of Nursing. And as a fellow nurse, um, you know, I love that and so many things about you, Amy. Welcome to our show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Linda. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. Let's let's jump right in um, to today's show, which is all about elevating your voice and becoming an empowered spokesperson for your yourself and others. And Amy, in October of 2010, you were diagnosed with a stage four inflammatory breast cancer, which is in fact a terminal cancer. So, could you just start off by telling our listeners what is inflammatory breast cancer and what does it mean to have stage four of that particular type of breast cancer? Sure. So, today, most breast cancers, uh, people have um, relatively good survival. About 90% live five or more years. Inflammatory breast cancer, instead of being a, a lump or a bump that people would pick up on that monthly self exam, it floats freely in the tissue of the breast. And when it clumps up, it appears like a red spot on the skin. It looks like the skin of an orange, little dimples, and it's red. So it looks more like a skin infection, but that's the sign of inflammatory breast cancer. And unfortunately, by the time it appears on the skin, it usually has spread Stage four means that it spread very far, and in my case, it spread to my lower spine. That really means that it spread throughout my body, but it happens to be attracted to my bones. And, and so what did your doctors tell you when they were talking about your, your disease and cor- tre- treatment courses, your prognosis? What was that conversation like? Uh, you know, it was a... It's a surreal conversation to have. Um, I felt 100% fine, but my doctor was telling me that inflammatory breast cancer, um, only 40% of people survive to five years. And, you know, we didn't know yet that it was stage four. When we found out it was stage four, that it had actually spread all the way to my lower spine, then the, the, the likely course of the disease was that only 11 to 20% survived to five years. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, very, very bad odds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a life-limiting illness. And, and remember, as I'm hearing all of this, I was still feeling just like anybody else. So it was it, very hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you say you're feeling just like anyone else, you're still trying to absorb the words, you have cancer. And what does that mean for you? Oh, 
it's it's devastating for anybody to hear that they have cancer. But I, but I have to say the the question, you know, his his honesty, um, my my doctor's honesty, allowed me to try to figure out well what do I what do I want to do? What's the right kind of care to receive? You know, given the fact that I am terminally ill. So mm-hmm. that actually was a gift, as hard as it was to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, and I suspect that that may have led to what you call your roadless travel treatment plan or treatment decisions. Um, you know, so, you know, one of, one of the things that, that I think is really remarkable about what I know about you is that you have really taken what you were given on that day. And, you know, I just would like to underscore that that was October of... 2010, and the recording of this show is October of 2015, which is a key marker for you, given what you just Yay. told us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still alive, and it's five years, and doing great, and doing great, and still feeling great, yes. And I think that's so key, right, to the to the conversation that we're going to have today. And, you know, you may not have always seen eye-to-eye with the treatment recommendations made by your doctor. So can you sort of talk us through what were their recommendations and, and, and how did you get to this process of choosing the right course of treatment for you? Oh, I think this is really important. You know, I went to my local doctor, um, uh, the cancer doctor, the oncologist, and she asked me, you know, given the fact that I was terminally ill, what did I want to accomplish for my health? You know, what was I hoping? And I told her I wanted the Niagara Falls trajectory. I wanted to feel good, 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 and then drop off the cliff. You know, keep me feeling well, but don't do things that are going to make me feel bad if they're not going to get me, you know, to a better place. And... You know, she was going to do only the treatments that had the least amount of side effects, trying mm-hmm. to hold back the cancer, but allowing me to, you know, still work and, and feel good. But I went for a second opinion, and my doctor, you know, thoroughly approved my going for the second opinion to this doctor who was a, a real specialist in this rare form of cancer. And that doctor... He wanted to take a very different approach. He wanted to do the most intense chemotherapy, followed by radiation, uh, mastectomy, radiation, and then again, the most intense chemotherapy. And, you know, when you think about Niagara Falls, good, 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 and drop off the cliff, he was going to drop me off the cliff with the treatment, but it was not going to change the outcome. I was going to go out to the same place. So... I did not choose to take his recommendations. Removing my breast, for example, was not going to get rid of the fact that the cancer was floating everywhere in my body. It had already, you know, the cat was already out of the bag. So, you know, he, he offered a plan, and I went back to my original doctor and chose only those things that would have the least amount of difficulty on my life because they're not going to change the outcome. It still is, it's a terminal disease. It is spread far. And so how do I maintain my life? That became the way that, that my doctor and I really formed care and treatment. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to get to how you are treating your cancer, but just a, a quick question. Were you able to stay working with that same physician? How did that physician um, receive those conversations that you were having? Well, I stayed with the original lovely physician who asked me what I wanted to achieve for my health, and Mm -hmm. I did not choose to go with the throw everything at it, Hail Mary, Mm -hmm. pass kind of physician who wanted to do everything and really didn't care what it was going to physically do for me, Mm -hmm. and and the fact that it wasn't actually going to do anything very good for me. Mm -hmm. So I stayed with the first physician, and Mm -hmm. she's terrific. Mm -hmm. And you're still with that first physician? Still with her. Yeah. So how um, are you treating your course of treatment, and what are the, the side effects and the benefits? The benefits are that you're here five years later following <laughs> your diagnosis. What are, the, uh, what are the side effects? Well, the treatment that I'm on, um, I take a medication that removes the hormones from my body. I was already postmenopausal, but estrogen and progesterone happen to make my particular cancer grow. Mm-hmm. So 
the, the pill that I take at night basically gets rid of the remainder of, of any of those hormones that happen to fuel my cancer. And then I also go for a monthly infusion to keep my bones strong. So, you know, these two things, um, they do have side effects. I mean, I remember when I first took the pill, and mind you, this is not, you know, nearly as harsh as the kinds of, you know, multiple drug infusions that most people, I think 90% of cancer patients get. So I'm, I'm choosing the, um, the light aerobics version of medication and treatment. Um, but it still had very heavy um, effect when I first started taking it. I was on the road, and um, I decided to take that very first pill. I had uh, gone to a meeting, and I was sitting at a table with business coworkers, and I thought, oh, it's probably a good idea to take it with food. And, and, and I took the pill. And my head, over the course of that dinner, started going down into a bowl of soup. Oh, no. (laughs) It just drained me. But I have to say now, I don't feel really the effects of the medication. Occasionally, I get um, some pains in my joints, or um, I felt like I've had the little feeling of, of a needle going into my scalp, little tiny things, but these are actually the side effects of the medication as it's working. But I haven't had major problems. I haven't had, you know, um, the nausea or to feel very weak or tired. I, I actually feel really good. Mm-hmm. So with the exception of that one day and that poor bowl of soup and your poor head. <laughs> <laughs> and the soup was orange. It was not pretty. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> well, Amy, we are going to run to a quick commercial break. And when we come back, I really want to talk about this idea of palliative care. And you and I together on this show are going to really start to help change the impression around what palliative care is and how important it has been um, for you. So I'll ask our listeners to please stay with us. We will be back right after a short break with Amy Berman on this incredibly important topic. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you break away from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Onyx Pharmaceuticals, an Amgen subsidiary, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. I am Linda House today, sitting in as guest host for this week, replacing Kim Tebeldo just for a very short period of time. She'll be back with you next week. And today we are talking about the importance of patients raising their voices for their own care, for others um, to learn from, 
or advocating for for others. And we're having a really interesting conversation with Amy Berman, who is a geriatric care expert and also a patient who is living with cancer. And Amy, before we went to break, we we talked about the the fact that you were given a, a diagnosis, a breast cancer diagnosis, and that you have been able to work in concert with your healthcare professional to ensure that you are receiving, and I love your words, the, the best care that's possible for you, allowing you to work toward your individual goals of, of therapy. And, uh, you know, a part of that is this concept of palliative care. And, you know, the general belief, is, as you know, is that palliative care is reserved for people who are facing imminent death or end of life. And you have personally taken this on as one of your missions to correct the belief around palliative care. And um, you've, been, you've been really vocal in saying that palliative care is a powerful resource, not only for you, but for anyone facing a, a, a difficult medical diagnosis, even outside of, of cancer. So can you just talk with our listeners a bit about what is palliative care and how on a high level has it impacted your life for the better and then we're going to go deep into this conversation. Sure, thank you Linda. Palliative care is the best friend of the seriously ill. Um, It's an extra layer of support. Palliative care for people who are getting curative treatment. I mean, people who are going to get better. There are people who are going to get past cancer. And for those people, they have oftentimes, you know, symptoms and pain from the cancer or from the treatments that they're getting. And palliative care helps them get through that curative care. For people who have chronic disease, and and I'm one of them. I'm not dying today. I'm not quite at end of life. I'm terminally ill, but I'm actually living quite well, most people who have cancer are in the kind of chronic disease stage. They live with cancer. And for those people, it also it helps them manage pain and symptoms. It helps with their care coordination. There even is um, a member who helps with their spiritual needs. So usually there's a chaplain involved in a palliative care team. So that extra layer of support that helps people manage and live well despite the serious illness. And then at the end of life, there also is palliative care. And at that point, that really is the most important thing at end of life, which is really making sure that somebody is comfortable and comforted to really give them and their family the kind of support that they need as they are going through the dying process. So palliative care is for all three. Mm-hmm. And so what are the things that you have been able to do because of um, the, the treatment of your cancer and the emphasis on palliative care? Well, um, first, I, you know, I get to live a pretty normal life. I mean, I, I go to work and I play. Um, I travel. I have lots of fun. Um, and I feel good. And, you know, palliative care is that thing that helps me get over whatever difficulties the cancer may give so that the cancer recedes into the background and I get to live a good life despite the fact that I have cancer. Mm-hmm. And so did you, and I know you, I know you travel a lot for, for play and for work and you are a tireless advocate on behalf of people living with cancer and also for older uh, adults. And for that, I, I thank you and, and, and I really respect you uh, for that. And so did you have to consult with your doctor about traveling or making any special arrangement, arrangements related to your treatment or your medication because of the traveling that you do? I did ask about traveling. As a matter of fact, that very first time when I was given the bottle of pills and I was going off on my very first trip, I said, is it okay if I travel? And my, my doctor said, of course it's okay that you travel. You do whatever it is that makes you happy. My medication doesn't have to be um, refrigerated. There's, there's really nothing special that I have to do. Um, and, and even in terms of managing the side effects, if, if I'm tired, I rest. But otherwise, I just go and do. And um, it's the same as staying home, except it's a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. And so give us a couple of examples of the travel that you've been able to do. Uh, I've climbed the Great Wall of China three times since I've been diagnosed. I went, um, oh, I jet skied around the Statue of Liberty. Now, that was wow. an interesting one. 
they have a, a tour that comes out of Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And it's a pretty long jet ski tour. And I was a little worried because I do have cancer in my lower spine. I thought, you know, I don't want to damage my spine. But mm-hmm. since I was the driver of my own jet ski, all I needed to do is just go slower if I felt the waves were a little too rough. I've had so much fun. Uh, I've camelback ridden in the Jordanian desert. And, and I get to work. I travel all over the country for work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really get to live well. And, and palliative care is really the reason that I do. Mm-hmm. I feel like you should be writing a book about your adventures. I hope that you are. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I do blog. I oh. definitely blog. And so we want to make sure, so we're going to give our listeners the, the warning now that uh, they need to grab a, a piece of paper and a pen, and, and we will come back to them with where they can find your blog. Oh, great. Great. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the choosing wisely approach. And you use the choosing wisely approach to develop your care plan. So I would love for you to tell our listeners just a little bit about what is choosing wisely and um, a little bit more about how, how you leverage those principles for your care. Choosing wisely is, um, all, is, is a campaign that was created out of all of the major medical societies and the, the American Academy of Nursing. Um, all of the different medical and healthcare groups came up with a set of recommendations And these recommendations were about care that was of low value, care that it it just didn't get good outcomes. The evidence suggests it just isn't good care. But a lot of these kinds of things are done routinely. People, People get bad care all the time. Well, how do providers and how do people like us know what bad care is? And Choosing Wisely has these kinds of um, resources. So, you know, I I had a situation where I had a new spot in the middle of my back um, that started hurting, and in fact, the cancer had spread to this area in the middle of my back. And the way that you treat cancer that has spread to the bone that's painful, they give you radiation, not to kill the cancer, but just to kill the pain, so a smaller dose of radiation. Still, pretty scary to get radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, most people would get 10 to 20 doses of radiation. That's a lot of doses of radiation. And they would feel crushing fatigue and burning and peeling of the skin. But there was a recommendation on choosing wisely that said you could give one dose, a little larger, and it should be as effective. They, that was the results of... Uh, You know, looking at 16,000 patients, they did just as well having the one dose. So it saves me 16, you know, 10 10 to 20 visits to the doctor. I I don't have to go through it that long. I don't have to pay the money for 10 to 20 visits. And I actually feel better immediately. And I did exactly that. And you know what? It worked like a charm. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take you after that one dose of radiation to feel better? Was it immediately? It was immediately. I was on a I was on a train the next morning going off to another place. I feeling great. Wow, that's great. Really amazing. That's great. And so we should let our listeners know that if they want more information about choosing wisely, the website is simply choosingwisely.org. All one word, choosingwisely.org. So so Amy, usually after a cancer diagnosis, patients will talk about waging a war with cancer, throwing everything out at it, those type of metaphors. But I can't help but wonder how people in your life, your friends, families, and colleagues, how have they reacted to your choice of your particular way of fighting the cancer, sticking with the battle analogy? Well, you know, I am waging a war against the cancer, too, but uh, the point of my war is that I'm trying to feel as well as possible Mm -hmm. and live as well as possible for as long as possible. I'm trying to really have it all. You know, it it turns out that if you really focus on feeling well, you actually are more likely to live longer. And so I'm trying not to throw useless treatment, burdensome treatment, at the disease, um, I was ready to, you know, do the everything, the kitchen sink approach. 
Mm-hmm. But the cancer had already spread far, and it wasn't going to really get me to a better place. My family, they've been incredibly supportive and understanding. I think, you know, my daughter cried a lot when she first heard about the diagnosis, but there was one moment, and it was about two weeks after the diagnosis, and I, and I said, really, I need to know, are you, are you okay with my doing this? And she said, you know, Mom, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. So she's been very supportive. Everybody's been very supportive. And in fact, I've, at this point, I've outlived all of the people I know who have been diagnosed since I was diagnosed. Mm. Well, and, 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 and you're waging a war for you and your family and quality. Right. And, and I am taking treatment. I'm just trying to choose the treatments that have the least amount of burden, mm-hmm. which seems like a reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And do you find that you run into healthcare professionals still today who want to take that more aggressive approach when they, when they run into you? I understand that you've got your care still with the, the amazing physician, you know, who, who helped you plan it. But, you know, in your course of running into others, your primary care physician? No, everybody has been in full agreement. In fact, um, you know, there, there have been surveys of physicians that it suggests that they actually would choose the same thing that I would do. You know, mm-hmm. they're more likely to choose for themselves the things that they don't do for their patients. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and in truth, as you know, we're starting to hear more and more patients, and largely thanks to your work and your sharing your story, who are also understanding that they can live a long life and have quality uh, as well by elevating their voices and making sure that their care team understands what, what's important to them. Right. Yes. There's thank no you. wrong decision, only, only an informed decision. Right. I agree. Right. And so, Amy, before we go to a commercial break, can you tell our listeners how to find your blog? It is um, F-O-U-N-D, like David, dot org, mm-hmm. backslash blog. Mm-hmm. The name of the blog is Health Agenda. If you Google Health Agenda, you'll see a whole list of blog posts. And there's a series that I've done on my health. Great. Thank you for that. And when we get back from the break, we will repeat this before the show closes. So we'll make sure that they, they know how to find you. And so for our listeners, we are taking a quick commercial break, but please stay with us. And you'll hear more about this conversation with Amy shortly. So please don't go away. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Takeda Oncology. I am Linda House. I'm your guest host today sitting in for Kim Tebaldo, who is out and will be back with you next week. I'm lucky that Kim is out because today I've been able to speak with Amy Berman myself. And Amy is a senior program officer at the Hartford Foundation, where she focuses on developing innovative, cost-effective models of care for older adults. And we've been talking to Amy as she was diagnosed five years ago this month, October of 2010, with a stage four inflammatory breast cancer, which is a terminal cancer. And Amy has made some strategic decisions alongside her family and her physician to treat her cancer in a way that has allowed her to really live a good quality of life, jet skiing around the um, Statue of Liberty, which, Amy, I didn't even know was possible, (laughs) (laughs) Um, among other things. And so it has been several years now um, since your initial diagnosis and you know we're talking about the the wonderful things that you're doing and the way in which you are um, blogging about that and just a, a quick refresher for our listeners who want to get to your blog they can see your blog at www.jheartfound j-h-a-r-t-f-o-u-n-d dot org backslash blog or by searching Health Agenda, and they can find your information there. We will also put a link on the Cancer Support Community website so that they they have it available. You know, I think, though, it's impossible to have a conversation about choices in cancer treatment without addressing the cost of cancer care. And I know that's something that you do regularly in the, the, the effort to try to really talk about how do we change this trajectory in a way that's meaningful for patients and really provides care for patients. And according to ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, cancer care costs are expected to grow from $125 billion in 2010 to $175 billion in 2020, so just in a 10-year period of time. So can you speak to us about how cost and the cost of care has played out in your personal experience? about choosing palliative care over aggressive treatment and how that's reduced the cost of your care, although I understand that the reason you've done it is for a completely different different reason. But just talk to us a little bit about how all of those pieces come together when you're thinking about your, your care. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really think about the cost and cutting the cost. What I think about is getting the best value. You know, what are the best outcomes for the lowest cost? Because, you know, we... People who live with cancer, we have to pay out of pocket. What we really want is we want the best possible health outcomes for the lowest cost. And, you know, so for me, I've, I've avoided care that, you know, was not going to get me better, like that mastectomy. It wasn't going to improve my health. In fact, it would, it would, it would cause a lot of harm, but it also would have added a lot of expense and it would have made me leave work for long periods of time and, and be away from my family and all the other things. At this point, you know, I have uh, better health, better care, and significantly lower costs. I estimate that I've saved about a million dollars to date um, between choosing the, the pill that I take at night instead of the combination IV chemotherapy that wouldn't have changed any of the outcome. It just would have made me feel worse. I avoided the surgery. That would have been another very expensive thing that would have been followed probably by rehabilitation and maybe home care, probably a rehospitalization if if there was a follow-up infection. So about a million dollars over the course of five years. And I, and I didn't do it because you know, I'm trying to save money. What I'm really trying to do is to do the least amount that has the most benefit because then I get to feel well. So I do get to feel well, and I'm, I'm really happy to report my pocketbook does well, too. Um, it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about healthcare and how healthcare is organized and you look across the various stakeholders, you know, what are some of the changes or reforms that, that you would like to see? Oh, there are a couple of things I'd like to see. Um, first, I, I'd like to see access to a palliative care team for anybody who has a serious illness diagnosis, especially cancer. 
um, the Institute of Medicine, one of the highest authorities in the nation, said that this is something that should be, um, you know, an expectation that people should be able to meet with that palliative care team and, and get that extra layer of support as they go through curative or chronic or, or end-of-life care. And yet, right now, we have palliative care only available primarily in the hospital. It's in about 90% of hospitals. But we don't have a way to pay for it in the community. Some places are trying to figure that out, but you really want to prevent somebody from going into the hospital. You want them early on to get the right kinds of additional help managing their illness. You want to have advanced care planning, you know, somebody to talk to them about their wishes and be honest with them about their, you know, the likely course of the disease so that they can make good decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and just to put a fine point on that, you know, I think about some of the populations of patients who would really benefit from palliative care, sickle cell anemia, uh, patients who have sickle cell anemia, patients who have MS, patients who have rheumatoid arthritis, just to sort of underscore the quality that, that the palliative care can really bring to people. I completely agree. It is the best friend of serious illness, and a lot of people don't understand what it is. They view it as giving up. Mm-hmm. It is anything but giving up. I, I am anything but giving up. Palliative mm-hmm. care is the thing that actually helps me live well in the face of all of this. Mm-hmm. And so, so you talk a lot about the importance of communicating your values to the healthcare team. And this is, so, this is an extremely important part of palliative care so that that team knows what your, what your values are and what you're interested in. You know, you've encouraged your family and, and other families to talk with each other about their values and the kinds of decisions that, the, that, that they would prefer before facing either a cancer diagnosis or um, a serious medical condition. So, so talk to us about why this is so, so critically important. Well, 75% of people are unable to make some or all decisions at the end of life. So mm-hmm. at, at the end, when you're making these critical decisions, likely you are incapacitated. You're not able to make those decisions. So what that does is it puts a burden on our family. Our family, if they don't know what we would want, they're left you know, debating what's the right thing. They don't know. It, it's, you know, it, moral anguish. I mean, you're leaving people to make decisions, really difficult decisions without knowing what you would want. The real gift isn't having conversation about your values, letting people know what you would want so that it's a gift to them. When that time comes, they're equipped. They say, well, I do know what she would want. It, that doesn't make the time easier but it makes the decision easier and it helps people even afterward be able to live with the decisions that they make because they know that that's what they, their family member wanted. So that, that really is a gift to your family. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and it, it's part of the overall plan. So I think your daughter's reaction to the decisions that you've made is a perfect example of her understanding why and how and your wishes and really being supportive and accepting of, of those. Yeah, it, 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 it's really, it is, it's brought us closer. Yeah, yes. And so, so as, as we wrap up the show today, Amy, and thank you again for, for being a part of this show and for being so open and forthright and, and sharing your journey, no doubt will this help our listeners in their, in their own journey. What, what would you like to leave our listeners with um, as, they, as they reflect on, on your comments and, thinking, and as they think about their, their own journey in the next days or weeks? Well, I, I would say to, to your listeners... Um, If you have cancer or if your family is dealing with cancer, it is possible to live well. And it's important. (coughs) Excuse me. It's important to to be actively participating in decisions around your health, around your care, because that's the only way you're going to get the good life in the face of serious illness. Mm -hmm. And for more information on that, just to remind people... Two websites, choosingwisely.org, and they can hear directly from you at your blog by searching Health Agenda or going directly to www.jhartf.com. 
O-U-N-D dot org backslash blog. Amy, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been really a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Linda. Great. Take to care. our listeners. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Again, I'm Linda House sitting in for Kim Tebaldo, who will be back with you next week. And as mentioned earlier, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information, you can also visit our website, which is cancersupportcommunity.org, or you can call us at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.